Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast, where I am joined by special guest Mike Hobart, where he is the communications of the Great American Mining Company, one of the first companies, I believe, that has captured the flare gas from their oil and gas mining industry to mine Bitcoin, which is awesome. They really accelerated this space. We get into that. We get into Mike's orange pill story, kind of how he found Bitcoin, how he's changed, uh, how it's changed him, his mindset, and a bunch of different topics on Mike. And then we get into six current event stories. So we get into the Inflation Reduction Act, which, you know, will probably increase inflation. But what do I know? Then we get into the Celsius bankrupt story, who's now becoming a Bitcoin mining company, surprisingly enough. Uh, Tornado Cash developer arrested. Is code free speech? We get into that. Latin America's largest investment bank launching a Bitcoin and crypto exchange. The Houston Texans accepting Bitcoin as payment for a suite. And lastly, we wrap up on the shitcoin Ethereum, the king of shitcoins, the merge. Is it actually going to happen? I don't know. It's been in the news. It's been on Bitcoin Twitter a lot. I couldn't avoid it this time. But hey, you know, we had to talk about that. But as always, as always, ladies and gents, this is not financial advice. So please, please, please do not take anything we say or any equity or anything like that in this podcast as financial advice everything in this podcast is strictly for entertainment purposes only but it is an outstanding show so please 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 give it a listen like it share it subscribe wherever you get your podcast follow mike check out the show notes now let's get into the riff whoosh Bing bong. I am live with another State of Bitcoin podcast running a a little behind schedule today, but that's all right. So if uh, you're in the chat or on Twitter, uh, be sure to join on YouTube so I can see your comments. I can't really see them if you're on. Hold up here. Slight technical difficulties. I had some background noise, but I am good now. Um, But if you are listening to this on audio, uh, be sure to check out the Fountain app, uh, Podcasting 2.0. You can stream me some sats. For those that have boosted and done other things like that in the past, I really appreciate it. I'm going to start reading boost and comments every episode. Uh, so uh, the one I got from this past week was Elobi. I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but... Uh, they they boosted the podcast and said, okay, let's go to listen to this podcast. So I really appreciate it. I uh, hope you get coming back and enjoy this podcast. But I have a very special guest. I have uh, Mike Hobart, who's sitting here in the green room. Mike, how are you doing tonight? Did I pronounce your last name right? You did. Uh, surprisingly, people uh, butcher my last name, even though it's phonetically pronounced exactly how it's spelled. So nice job on that one. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, what's funny is like my, my last name is Keys and I get that spelled incorrectly so often. So I, I can relate. <laughs> um, but uh, Mike, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, like how you found Bitcoin in your orange pill story? Okay. Um, so I found Bitcoin because I it was 
summer of 2017, I was preparing, I was mobilizing to go on deployment overseas. And I was like, that was when I, I kind of started to understand that I was going to be earning a salary that was also tax free because of where we were going. So I was like, okay, I don't want to like just blow all my money like off a of deployment like an idiot. So I started looking into, I was talking with my mom and cause she was a, uh, she held a senior position at like Transamerica. So I was talking like investing about her, like about investing with her and started talking about how I just needed to make my money work, like work for me so I can actually like get wealthy. And that was also when I had noticed Bitcoin in that the spring of that year had broke like a thousand dollars. And then by August, which was like a couple weeks before my mobilization, I would have been like officially starting mobilization is when I noticed that Bitcoin had quadrupled in like a quarter's time. And so I was like, okay, I, like if it's doing this, then people want it for some reason. So that was, I mean, that was where I started digging. And then from there, I basically have spent, I think I've averaged like three to four hours of Bitcoin content a day since uh, August of 17. So, I mean, that's a lot of hours. I've never added it up, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's probably pretty close to those uh, that ten thousand hours, or, or you know, uh, somewhere along those I lines. Think so. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> good for you to put it in the work and still loving it to this day. So that's awesome. So obviously, it it changed a little bit of your perspective. But um, do you think that you would have like found Bitcoin at all if you didn't think uh, your mom didn't uh, have that kind of background where she was, uh, you know, you were kind of like talking to her about investing or, um, you know, what I guess kind of drove you to like trying to figure out how to grow your wealth uh, other than I guess the tax purposes? I don't think I don't think I, I, I would have gotten to that point. Because um, my mom was largely she was a huge mentor for me uh throughout my life and i don't know without ha without being to have being able of having like the big picture more wisdom centric conversations with her i don't, I don't think i would have ended up there because like most at the time most of my friends and family uh they every, like everybody where i'm from just spends their money on you know alcohol like like not many people are actually planning for the future and especially like amongst the millennial generation back in 17, like even like, I mean, still to this day, I'm just not part of that group anymore, but there's, there's just a lot of nihilism out there and, and there are people just don't like a lot of people just don't want to sacrifice the immediate gratification for future returns. Yeah, I definitely think that there's a lot, there's like, there's an aspect where, uh, you know, it's it's kind of interesting where meme stocks and investing has kind of gotten popularized because of the, you know, uh, I guess COVID pandemic, everybody was home a little bit more, had a little bit more time to kind of look at these things. But it seems like everybody's kind of trying to find those get rich quick schemes. So it's funny because you know, Bitcoin was kind of that early one where everybody was talking about how it's so volatile, but it seems like now everybody's trying to find, you know, the, the next Bitcoin, quote unquote. So, you know, I, I guess, how do you view like the, the trend that this is going? Do you think, uh, you know, like the shitcoin trend, the meme stocks, like all these kind of things shooting up and maybe people getting burned? Do you think that's going to bring people more to Bitcoin or do you think that's kind of like delaying everybody kind of finding their way to Bitcoin? Yeah, I, I think no, I think it will. Um, surprisingly enough, it's a it's it's a meme at this point. But like in my opinion, all roads lead to Bitcoin. Um, 
and I hate saying those things because I, I have I have a personal like gripe with just like religions like religion and echo chambers and that's and like making those claims like really does sound like a like a religious like kind of politic or doctrine but because like when people when when all these people because like even right now like there's so many weird things going on in legacy markets like i'm sure we'll get to them like talking about them but like with the meme stocks or or shit coins when when those when the sheep that are getting like lined up right now do get slaughtered and they will um a lot of people will just quit entirely and they'll just give up but then there's going to be a lot of people that start asking questions like why did this like why did the chart look so good and then it just like sold off heavy like why like this doesn't make because that was a lot of like where i really started leaning into bitcoin like during the during the bear market of uh um 17 to 9 through 19 like up into 20 like especially the initial like couple months where it like when it tapped 20 and then crashed to 12 and then back up to like 16 or 18 and then back to 12 and it like just kind of bounced around um those those were the days where i was like those were the hardest days where you kind of just lick your wounds and accept the losses but then you you have to decide it's like okay am i going to lean into this and actually understand it so i can profit better the next go around or am i just going to throw my hands up and and go back to just playing video games and getting drunk every weekend like that's not really a decision in my opinion yeah no i agree 100 percent. you know i think a big part of it is just like education right so um, you know, I, the recent meme stock, I don't know if you've been kind of paying attention to it, but is Bed Bath & Beyond. It's been shooting up and there was a lot on FinTwit. You know, I kind of get both sides, uh, right? So like some of my audience is more just financial Twitter and some is strictly Bitcoin. And so it's interesting because I saw a lot of FinTwit almost kind of defending Bed Bath & Beyond saying like, oh, it's not a meme stock, you know, the... Uh, I think the former CEO like worked at GameStop or did something along those lines. Um, and so they're like, oh, well, he's not doing it again. Um, but, you know, it just came out today, too, that he sold all his stock, you know, re really close to the top. So, um, you know, as much as people don't want to admit, like a lot of these markets are, are pretty manipulated as well. And, you know, I think it's interesting because that's a big argument that I hear, uh, you know, when it comes to Bitcoin is that they say like a lot of whales, like, you know, they, they name the Michael Saylors or some other people like that, that accumulate a lot of Bitcoin. And then they say, well, you know, they could essentially control the price by selling it on or selling it off and, and doing all these other things. So I, I just think it's kind of an interesting time now because we're seeing a lot of other markets being manipulated. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if it was quite as evident as it is right now. Um, so, you know, what do you say to those people that are, you know, maybe questioning, uh, I guess, the legitimacy behind Bitcoin when they, you know, say things like, all right, well, you know, Bitcoin's price can be manipulated by some of these whales. I, uh, I bring up the headlines from the past year that have been stating because I was reading a couple Bloomberg articles. It seemed like once a like at least one a week for like probably a month or a month and a half that was talking about how. I'm, it was nearly all the major big bank corporations were getting fined for uh, manipulating the precious metals markets. And they were all averaging somewhere around 200 million a pop. <laughs> like people want to talk about Bitcoin getting manipulated. I'm like, this market is over 10 times the size and it's getting manipulated worse than Bitcoin. Like don't, 
don't come at us with like that because like it's like they're it's it's a total hypocritical grift you know like like they and and you bring that up to those people and they they're just like oh well you know that's different like now like look at diamonds diamonds is the same freaking thing like it's all just locked up into vaults and they decide when they want to release some more like like get out of here like and most of the time you have to really like to really start breaking through those people you can't really talk from those terms like i just said like you have to do socratic method like okay i mean if that's if that's your position then you can't really invest in gold or equities or bonds i mean you you before 2020 you could have argued real estate but then blackrock and zillow started to break that so <laughs> there's there's really there's really nowhere you can go to avoid like just people with deep pockets having power yeah, exactly. And I think it's just, you know, a part of the fiat system, which is, uh, you know, just part of the you know, part of the, the runoff, right, is like everything can be manipulated if 60% of the money supply can be printed, you know, in, in a matter of uh, a few months, then, yeah. uh, you know, I, everything can be manipulated that is backed by that. And that's seemingly everything. Well, uh, and, and when you when you understand that, too, you understand why the wealthy people don't ever sell what they're collateralizing for their loans. Like they don't ever sell it. Like they, they use, they use the collateral to get a loan to purchase more collateral to get another loan. That's precisely what Donald Trump does. And that's precisely what Robert Kiyosaki did. And that's what he wrote his whole book series. on. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, you know, on that, I, I, I think it's kind of interesting where things are going in the Bitcoin space right now. So, I, I think it's kind of dangerous because of, you know, maybe how volatile the assets are right now. But what do you think of a, a lot of these products coming out with like Bitcoin backed loans um, and, and things like that? Do you, uh, I guess, foresee people these kind of becoming popularized or uh, do you think like, you know, a lot of people like, you know, that that had these loans on like places like Celsius and other places are going to get burned and, uh, you know, have to sell off a lot of their Bitcoin? I think, I think it's going to be both was going to be lopsided to the losers um, because there will, there, I mean, there will be stories of people that like happen to time the market around the bowling bottom of the bear market that, that loan their stuff out to get a little bit more Bitcoin at like at the bottom cheap prices and it's going to pay off for them. And those kinds of stories will stick around and they'll be glorified in the bull market. And it'll just motivate people to do it again the next time. It's going to be the same story over and over until like the market cap gets high enough to where people can get enough of a cash loan with the like Bitcoin because it's a pristine collateral. Like once it gets up to those high enough of prices, then like it'll be more of a run of the mill, like kind of um, homegrown or, or standard like strategy for for the average person in my opinion i mean that, like every that's just following a sigmoid distribution curve that's how everything tends to go yeah exactly i kind of i tend to agree with you as well is that a lot of these stories will be glorified but let's get into a little bit more of your background so your communications at uh at the great american mining company um, which I think is really interesting because I don't, from what I remember, I think you guys were one of the first, if not the first, that started capturing flare gas to mine Bitcoin. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the exact history and um, 
genealogy of all the different miners. But I will say that I was uh, I was an early fan of them just because of like not just because but largely because of like Marty Ben's podcast. So when they uh, when they expressed interest in having me come on, I, I I jumped at it. I was like, hell yeah, dude! <laughs> I'm not gonna say no to you guys. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, like explain, uh, tell us a little bit about your experience there. Like, you know, as communications, do you just, do you get to go to a lot of these mining fields? Like, or do you get to, you know, just kind of interact? Are you, you more on a, I guess the sales, like kind of business side? Um, I'm largely, I'm more on the, like the, the forward facing kind of Working on becoming, I guess, like you could say, kind of like the, not quite the voice of the company, but kind of like a representative voice of the company. That'd be a better description. Um, because I'm always, I'm also like, I've been, since I, I, I started at uh, GAM, I've really been leaning in on understanding um, like the oil and gas industry. Because if, I because I, like the way I look at it is in order for me to to argue the point of why the oil and gas producers stand to, like to benefit largely from Bitcoin, I have to also understand the oil and gas side of the equation. So I mean, it's, it's just that's just simple math in my opinion. Is I but it's like communications math. Um, but yeah, but I to answer the other part of your question, I normally I don't think a communications manager would be like going out in the field but i specifically told the team i was like guys i've got i mean i work out all the time and i've got army experience as far as like labor and everything goes and i work for like uh the pipe fitters union um locally in the area back here in iowa so i was like i'm, I'm not afraid or like concerned about getting my hands dirty or like doing a little bit of work so i was actually just out in the fields um last week it was a lot of fun that's awesome. That, yeah, that's awesome stuff. Yeah, I remember uh, I shot you a DM just to make sure that, you know, we were still good for this week. And you're like, yeah, I'm out in the field. So that's why I had to ask the question. Uh, so, I mean, that, that seems like some really cool stuff. So, I mean, uh, I, I think it's really interesting time, too, for a lot of these oil and uh, gas companies, because I believe there was a bill that I talked about last week in my podcast that got passed that uh, $1.5 billion is being uh, you know, divvied out for these oil and gas companies to look into ways to capture flare gas. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting because at first, you know, the ESG narrative was not super friendly to these oil and gas companies e trying to even capture this flare, flare gas. So <laughs> have you, I guess, on the communication side, seen a little bit of like a shift in that narrative where you know, they're, they're understanding like, okay, like oil and gas is not really going anywhere and we need to find a way to kind of capture this flare energy. Or do you still kind of see a lot of these red flags or, you know, hurdles that you need to jump over for the ESG purposes? Uh, the hurdles, the hurdles are definitely still there. Um, because there was also a, another article that I initially, um, interpreted incorrectly, uh, cause I actually pushed it to my team and, it was an article from Bloomberg that was stating a um, a court case against it was a it was from a state on the East Coast against uh, I think it was Chevron maybe or one of the big oil companies. Um, there was a court case. I think they were suing them for something. Don't like quote me on that, but. It was regard. It was with regards to like their environmental impact and suggesting that the 
the oil and gas company, whichever one it was, uh, didn't accurately describe the 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 risks to the environment and climate change. Um, so they're still dealing because like that, like that had initially gotten thrown up to the federal level. And this recent article was just describing how it got kicked from the federal level back to the individual state level, which I mean, is good for individual states, in my opinion, because that means that the, the federal courts aren't trying to, you know, establish sweeping rules for the entire country. So each state can kind of do their own thing. And then we can start to figure out like then we can start to really get kind of like a. A, a good distributed kind of case study to start like making these arguments for oil and gas. Um, but at the same time, I've definitely to the other question that you asked is that I've definitely noticed the tide hasn't fully shifted yet, but we're, it feels like we're definitely approaching that kind of like phase shift potential where the volatility starts to really increase. Cause like, now you're starting to see all sorts of headlines that are that are talking both sides of the aisle, um, and you kind of you kind of need that to start having people like once they start seeing the the not all people but the smart people once they see headlines that are challenging their accepted narrative, um, they'll get curious as far as like the justifications for the other side because I was the same way and, like when over the last like year or so talking on spaces and on podcasts like. I've, I've made some like pretty sweeping generalizations as far as like people and not wanting to change and all this other stuff. I was like, I'm, I'm, com- I'm comfortable making those sweeping generalizations because I was one of those people. And like, that's another thing with regards to like the whole fiat mindset is not a lot of people are comfortable like admitting those kinds of things. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. So do you think that, you know, because of Bitcoin, a lot of this change in the mindset is, is coming along or do you think, you know, maybe there's some other external factors like, you know, the potential energy crisis that we're in or, or some of these other, you know, maybe macro factors? Uh, definitely the latter two. Um, I don't think people would even be wanting to listen to Bitcoin miners if it wasn't for the fact that now all of the ESG proponents are starting to actually accept that we need oil and we need lots of oil and there's also the dynamic of with the between the proven um probable and possible uh reserves that we have like we have hundreds of years worth of current consumption of of oil left and that's just in certain basins that's not I can, that's not considering all the basins collectively brought together. So I think there's a lot of growing up going on right now. And that's, and that's, what's leading to like people finally getting to the position of like, okay, if this is the case, then how do we incentivize more oil production? And then that's where entities like great American mining come in. Oh, a hundred percent. And I absolutely love what you guys are doing and, you know, not only for the space, but, you know, I kind of pushing that, uh, you know, pushing that capture of the flare gas, because like I said, I think, you know, from my perspective, I'm not sure if this is a hundred percent right, but I, I think you guys were one of the first, you know, mining companies that I heard of that was, you know, capturing that flare gas. Definitely the first I heard of. Yeah. So, I mean, it's overall, I think just great for the space. Uh, not only for Bitcoin, but for the oil and gas industry as well, because I think a lot of people have followed suit. And, you know, it seems like politicians are kind of waking up to this fact 
But uh, I guess that kind of leads me into my next story that I, I don't know if they're really waking up to the whole like, you know, inflation and, and everything else. Like, I, I think they're kind of scrambling here to kind of figure out ways how to combat it. So the latest that they're doing that the that President Biden just passed was a 40 or 430 uh, billion dollar inflation reduction act. And if you're not watching the video, I'm, I'm putting in air quotes here, but 369 billion of that is to invest in climate and energy policies. 64 billion is to extend a policy under the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obama Obamacare, and 15 wow. percent of uh, corporate taxes aimed at companies that are raising over a billion a year. Um, and also last week, there's 124 uh, that I covered last week. 124 billion of that is to increase IRS enforcement which is allegedly to audit the rich. But, um, you know, if you were on the spaces or, uh, you know, you check out my newsletter, I put in a map there that shows uh, the country's poverty rate from 2013 to 2017, as well as the places that get audited the most. And you can see that they kind of line up um, almost perfectly, which is, uh, you know, a shame because a lot of these uh, rich people can find out ways to get away, get around taxes and things like that. Whereas, you know, if you're not making quite as much money, you, you're probably just going to bend the knee. But, um, you know, how are you viewing this whole like, you know, inflation situation? You know, I, like I said before, I feel like the government personally is kind of uh, grasping at straws and trying to figure out ways to combat it. But, you know, as we said before, we've seen a lot of uh, craziness go on, especially as of late with, you know, t since 2020 on. Um, so how are you viewing this whole macro situation? And do you see like, any kind of clear path out that isn't going to be extremely bloody and, uh, you know, hurt the average American. Well, the, the first, uh, the first talking point would be, uh, the IRA, the inflation reduction act. Um, cause the, uh, to further to your point too, is like, I've seen a couple infographics that broke down, like how, like the, the taxing would break down between the lower, the lower class, middle class and the, the the rich and then the wealthy or whatever and the the middle class pays out or like pays out in taxes more like the largest out of all of those groups and again, i'm pretty sure uh because my girlfriend and i were talking about it before this and i think it's like the the salary bracket of forty thousand to a hundred thousand, you're paying an additional thirty percent more in taxes or something like that. Like, don't quote me; I might be wrong, but it's clearly not like they're like they're they're clearly trying to. They claim they're trying to reduce inflation, but they're seeking tax revenue in ways that are to your point grasping at straws instead of just doing what they they know I, I would argue that they know what should be done what needs to be done but they're trying to find every way to squeeze every dollar out of the population without having to do what they know needs to be done first um and 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 that and that that, that kind of leads us to the answer as far as like strategies to avoid either literal or economic bloodshed um you just have to start you, I, you energy determines the price of everything and and the uk and the eu are seeing that like become painfully true in the last couple of months and it's going to get painfully worse 
for everybody, including Americans, in my opinion, because like in order to reduce, like relieve these pressures, we need more, we need more fossil fuels and we need more energy in general. So that means more nuclear, but that also means more, uh, more oil and, and gas because like, I think, I think the U S's exports as of 2020 were six and a half, like just over six and a half trillion cubic feet for the year. And 64% of that is exported. And I think like close to 50% of what's exported is sent out through pipelines. So like, like, and knowing that this year is going to be like this, like going into Q4 and then especially into next year with fertilizers and everything, like you need natural gas, not only to heat houses in the, in the winter, but then you also need that gas to help produce fertilizers going into the next harvest season and like the current harvest season for the u.s i don't know if you looked at it it looks like absolute ass like over 60 percent. i think it's over 60 percent of the united states is at least in a drought if not in a severe drought and it gets worse the farther southwest you go and that's like there was already articles last week talk or earlier this yeah earlier this week i think talking about um how the drought down in Texas is slaughtering cotton yields. And I mean, it's like, it might not be this year, but next year that'll like start to impact the, the price of clothing and children's clothing. Cause children's clothing is probably, I don't know the economics on this, but it, <laughs> I know from my friends who have children is that that's a huge cost because they're growing so fast. You're just constantly turnover, tur- you got a high turnover rate in clothing and kids clothing isn't necessarily cheap either. And and like, like we haven't even actually talked about the actual harvest for food and it, it just gets worse because like at the same time, like a lot of the grain that we're producing from corn or wheat or, you know, whatever, a lot of that is also getting used to feed livestock and that's producing livestock that are in a similar health condition as the rest of our, the U S population, which is obese. And that's what likely, in my opinion, led to like the multiple thousands of cattle just keeling over in that heat wave, like down in Kansas and uh, I think Oklahoma or whatever. So like, like, and I, I, I love paying attention to the macro stuff because it's, it goes by without being heated by anybody because it's not necessarily immediately inflammatory. Like most people want to hear about how Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson broke up. Like who cares? Like it literally does like that, that provides zero value to like, like or impact your life. I don't know. No, I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think there's, you know, a ton of underlying issues and, you know, my first thought too, is like, how are we going to get this money for this bill? Right. Because I mean, it's $430 billion. They're not going to get that all from tax revenue. Granted, they're going to try to, to get as much taxes out of the people as they can. But, you know, like, uh, like kind of like what we saw during the COVID pandemic, that just makes it worse for small businesses, right? Because now people are going to be demanding more salary because more is going to be ta- taken out of their taxes. And yeah. businesses are going to be needing to have bigger margins because they're going to have to, you know, those operating costs aren't getting any cheaper. Everything's getting more expensive. Gas is still expensive. You know, people aren't really thinking supply about supply chain issues. Yeah, exactly. They don't they don't really think about these, you know, capital expenditures when it comes to a business, even getting, you know, a piece of meat from somewhere to your local grocery store. You know, some of those things that that people just don't really see really increase the cost 
of every good and service because, you know, people need to make a living at the end of the day. Right. So uh, I think, you know, a lot of these tactics that they're using is taking money, like you said, away from the people and businesses. And at the end of the day, like it, I, from what I see, the government just really has a spending problem. Like, well, and, and like, not to, I don't mean to cut you off, but like, and to that point along the same lines as like that conversation, like that, like train of thought, like, do you remember the couple months ago, they also voted down to make insider trading illegal. So like, they're all making however many multiples off of their insider trading and who was the smart guy or smart lady that decided we should ask the criminals to vote on whether their activity should be charged as criminal activity? Like, what, like in what world does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, exactly. By the way, let me know if these cicadas are too loud. I can go on uh, you. <laughs> no, they're they're not too bad. Um, but that's just from my perspective, right? So, but uh, yeah, I mean, we had the Nancy Pelosi tracker too, right? That was like a super popular <laughs> Twitter account. It had like, I think over half a million followers. And then all of a sudden, you know, it got banned because, you know, a lot of these things, like people, the average Americans like waking up to the fact that, you know, a lot of our politicians are some of the best uh, stock pickers globally. And you wonder why, right? Because like it, it's insider trading is becoming rampant. There's a lot of just, you know, a lot of corruption to yeah. just the least like going on and, you know, things need to be changed, uh, you know, in order to help a lot of these uh, Americans. And I feel like a lot of the policies are not really helping them. You know, they're making it a little bit harder on on Americans. And, you know, on that note, too, we're, we're seeing a lot of companies too like go through bankruptcy and a lot of crooked activities. Right. So we saw Celsius Networks shut down withdrawals. And then they filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but they recently gained clearance to restructure and begin a Bitcoin mining uh, business. So as somebody who's helping out the Great American Mining Company, you know, I, I know like just from looking into a lot of these financials, like setting up a mining company where you're not really having great access to energy or just kind of like learning, getting into it. It is, you know, a tough business to get started to figure out those margins, figure out how to, how to sustain machines, all Very that mildly. Stuff. Yeah, and uh, it, it's tough to start. And a bankrupt Celsius is now getting permission to kind of start and and ramp up that side of the business while they're still not allowing their users to withdraw any assets off the platform. So, you know, I, I guess how do you feel about you know this whole situation with? celsius and you know others that are kind of filing bankruptcy and not allowing users to withdraw but still you know essentially being allowed to operate their business and keep moving it forward it seems like that's a really inflammatory question <laughs> uh i don't it's i'll just all i like all i'll really say is it's not how i would do business um but, and I don't know if you listened to the recent riff from Guy Swan and Corey Clipston, where they talked about like these particular entities between Celsius and Mashinsky or Three Arrows Capital or Voyager or any of the, or any of these others. Um, but I'm also homegrown in the breadbasket of America or like your word is like everything and reputation is more important than what you like what like whatever monetary value you you earn so 
I, I, it's, I don't like Celsius, but like, as far as like any of the, cause like some of the mining companies, like, I can't really judge them in the sense of like, I'm not, I wasn't in like those positions, like making those decisions. Uh, I probably would have made some different ones. Um, especially with regards to the amount of risk and the timing of the year that they decided to like pile in. Uh, but you know, it's also, I'm not the one making the decisions that amount to millions or tens of millions of dollars. So <laughs> maybe there's a good reason for that because some of these guys are still getting bailed out and they're still, they're getting an, an enough amount of capital to, if they're, if they're smart, they can continue growing. And then, I mean, cause like, it's not ethical by any means, but if they do make good on their promises to where those people do finally get their funds, like that'll be the, like, that'll be the big one in my opinion, because if, if, if they don't make good on the promises, that's the real, that's the real decision maker. Um, and if, if, and if they make good on them, then they'll, they'll earn, they'll probably earn a lot of, uh, ground back as far as their PR goes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting, right? Because I think we're seeing, we're seeing not only like, you know, companies like Celsius and others who are just involved in the greater crypto space, but we're also seeing, you know, a lot of miners kind of struggle to, um, you know, some of them having to sell off a lot of their holdings to, you know, manage their operating expenses and things like that too. So, you know, I think the best thing that'll probably come out of this bear market is that a lot of these Bitcoin related companies that shot up are going to at least have to, you know, structure and be prepared for, you know, a next potential downturn. And so I think that 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 this will at least, you know, strengthen a lot of companies and, uh, you know, There's a lot of growing up going on. Yeah, because I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, a lot of these Bitcoin companies are like, new founders that are, you know, not really super experienced. Of course, Mashinsky is a different case, but, you know, uh, where, where he's been kind of doing things like this, you know, for, for, it seems like quite some time, at least, you know, from what uh, Corey has been detailing, but, um, you know, I, I think like a lot of these Bitcoin companies are new founders that just had a love for Bitcoin. And so they founded this company and they're kind of, you know, uh, being taught a tough lesson and, you know, at the end of the day, the underlying asset is extremely volatile. So, well, know. and, and the way a lot of their decision-making was it, I mean, it signaled to me pretty clearly that they actually believed that this was like the last cycle. Like they actually bought into Dan Held's thing of, uh, the super cycle beginning. And I, and I'm not, trying to toot my own horn i've been told that i need to get better at it and i should but like i i, I never really bought into the super cycle thing i was like yeah i mean sure it's plausible is it probable no like there's not a like in order for like some sort of dynamic for that to happen like you would have to have a cascade up and to the right of of adoption like you would have you would have to have whole ass countries and large portions of their populations just onboarding onto Bitcoin rapidly, like every day, in order to like actually produce some sort of super cycling. And even to that point, it probably wouldn't produce any sort of super cycle because then people would be like selling off pretty hard to capture like any profits or whatever, right? So like you'd you'd still like see bubble pop dynamics. I don't think there's any get. I don't think there's any getting away from it until like you get to significant, until you get to the actual singularity moment, where you you cross that threshold of a 
whatever the magic number is for the percentage of like global adoption. And then it kind of carries itself off from there. Yeah. As much as we don't want to admit it, I still think like it's still kind of cyclical based off the, the, you know, having period, maybe it's coincidental, but um, you know, just kind of looking at it for me, that that's still kind of what I'm seeing. And I think the volatility has gone down like throughout the cycles. Um, But I think like, you know, it's still going to be, yeah, a long time before we see the quote-unquote super cycle, you know, kind of like what Dan Hill was saying. Like, like you said, maybe we get there, maybe we never do, and we kind of just see these waves. Um, well, and, and, like, the other thing to consider, too, is, like, things could have been – things could have gotten really weird if China wouldn't have timed their, their mining ban the way they did. Like, in all argument's sake, but, like, in reality, we're never going to know because you can't go back and change time, right? <laughs> I mean, it's very possible that maybe there was an opportunity at one point for the Super Cycle 2 gang, that kind of um, momentum and fuel to actually begin. But, you know. Well, too, I think that there's always going to be some outside macroeconomic factors that we're never going to be able to call or know or understand, right? So yeah, um, I think, like, you know, at the end of the day, Bitcoin is still, as much as we don't want to admit, you know, pretty correlated when it comes to a lot of these like growth and like quote unquote risk on assets right now. And so I think it's going to take some time and it will be decoupled eventually. But, you know, for the time being, it's still kind of following those trends. So, um, you know, once we get more people kind of coming in and hodling and and doing all that kind of stuff to make it a little bit more stable, um, you know, maybe use it more as transactions, more people are adopting it for that kind of use case too. I think it will, but, you know, for right now, it's still, you know, just pretty correlated. And I think it's going to take some time to get away from that. Well, um, and, and, and people, I, I don't really buy into the feasibility of the asset being um, asymmetric in how it's how it like decouples or is not correlated to other to the like other markets because it's just like any it's just like a model because like models only work when the majority of the population isn't like following or looking at them but then once enough of the population identifies it and recognizes it and refers back to it then the model breaks so i think now we're to the point now where a lot of like enough people are starting to pay attention that it's just it's going to be correlated to business cycles and debt cycles just like everything else um because the other thing to consider too is like what we're starting to see set up right now is how sovereign debt default starts to like starts to play into how the cycles act because like even even if there there were like small emerging market um sovereign debt defaults and it did push some portions of populations across the world into bitcoin like it's those markets are so small that like in all likelihood, it's not, it's not going to be enough to move the needle enough to kick Bitcoin into some sort of like cyclical bear market again, when the rest of the world is going through what is going to be a global recession. And if like the decisions, if the smart decisions aren't made fast enough, there's very, like in my opinion, there's very much the likelihood of like falling into like a global depression too. Because like like going back to the uh, global financial crisis, one thing that a lot of people just I don't know if they choose to be, remain ignorant of or they just don't know, but 
the group, the people that actually pulled us out of the 2008 financial crisis wasn't Powell printing. It was China buying up our debt. Like they bought up like, like what, like a trillion or a trillion and a half of our, of our like sovereign, like government debt. Like that's what saved us because we got funding to, you know, plow it into all those bailouts for those companies that didn't deserve it. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you a hundred percent too. And I, and I think too, like, you know, it just comes down to the way Bitcoin's viewed, right. Um, you know, it's, are people going to continue to visit, uh, view it as like an investable asset or more of, you know, the network or, you know, the use case of transactional currency or other things like that too. And, you know, I, I think it really comes down to, yeah, the way that we view it in the legal system too, and this might be a, a roundabout way to kind of get to the next story, but essentially you know, a tornado cash developer was arrested last week. And so uh, if you didn't hear tornado cash is kind of a mixing service, I think particularly for Ethereum, but oh, okay. regardless, it's, uh, you know, one of those mixing services that allows you to essentially transact and, you know, do, uh, you know, maybe like, I think it's like a popular one in Bitcoin is Whirlpool, um, where you can essentially, I don't know, I can't even think of the term right now, but uh, essentially like help kind of uh, make those, those, yeah, not non KYC, you know, in some roundabout way. Um, but he got this coder got arrested and it almost seems like too, like they're because they're not necessarily viewing code as free speech because he kind of allowed, you know, through this tornado cash, allowed some people to, you know, manipulate the market and kind of rip some people off. So do you think that like eventually code is going to be, you know, viewed more so as like free speech, people can kind of code and do projects as they like, or do you kind of see, you know, it going the opposite direction where governments now are kind of waking up to the fact that, you know, if you can code, you almost have like, you know, all this power. So they're going to start to try to regulate you know, codes and softwares and other things that you can do. I think, uh, I definitely think that they'll try. I, I, to think that they wouldn't try, I think would be pretty foolish. Um, but the funny thing is, in my opinion, is that, uh, the onset of social media is actually probably helping protect that. Um, because if they decide that, that text isn't speech, uh, and it's not protected by First Amendment rights, then like say goodbye to all of the newspapers and magazines and newsletters and all the like text messages, everything, closed captioning, like it would like all of that would go. And I I'm sorry, but I just I just don't think that there's enough Americans that rely on all of those services. I don't think there's enough Americans that would agree with that kind of determination. And cause like, that's a, that's an extremely slippery slope. Like we've been watching it for the last two years, as far as like what's been going on with social media, like between just, just Twitter and Facebook alone. Like you don't even have to rope in all like the ridiculous mainstream media parroting that's been going on and like how hard they've all been leaning in and like allowing the government to influence like amendment rights. Like this just, and in, like we're starting to see pushback. It's been largely like pretty quiet, but there's been a lot of people that have been, um, particularly lawyers, obviously, that have been really going in hard at these government institutions that are clearly trying to influence 
how people like self-censor and everything because it's still a form of censorship and it's still an infringement because like and that's the other thing too is coercion is a is a mafia business tactic and like there's they i would argue for the last couple of years they've been using their uh their authority to try and coerce people into saying and acting in particular ways that may or may not go against their their personal views and that's wrong that's wrong on every level Oh, a hundred percent. And, you know, you know, I think it's interesting because I think, yeah, like you said, it's just kind of, you know, it got to the point where, okay, you know, if you're saying something against one side or some other side, whatever, and they don't agree with you, they're kind of okay with that method. So, you know, example, like, you know, when, when Trump got uh, banned off Twitter, a lot of the people that I know from like the other side of the curtain were, okay with that because they said you know twitter is a private company they can kind of do whatever they want and i i was like okay well no matter what side you're on the president of the united states is supposed to be one of the more powerful people in the country and now his voice is essentially being you know cut off because whether you like it or not twitter has become almost like a big news source for a majority of people right so i mean especially like bitcoin twitter and other things like some people don't even watch the news. They just get these little clips on Twitter or just catch everything there. So that's, I'm one of those people. I don't watch the news. Yeah, same here. And, and it's incredible that, you know, these social media you know, networks and companies now have like so much power and you don't really step back and think about it until like, you know, something like this happens. You're, and I was like, I had that oh shit moment where it's like, okay, well, you know, if they can mute the president of the United States, they can manipulate essentially anything, anything that we can hear, the timelines, the algorithms, like all that kind of stuff. Like, OK, you know, it, it was kind of a joke to me at first, but now it's like, OK, I, I that that was kind of like a wake up moment for me where I was like, OK, you know, is free speech actually free? I don't know. I mean, it seems like at this point, like anything is kind of like up in the air and can be potentially manipulated. And well, so... What's because what scared me like yours was the Donald Trump moment. Mine was the response to the particular health event that you know has been lasting across the last couple of years. When like they started like epidemiologists and virologists started like speaking out, and physicians were like, "No, this is not the way to do this. Like this is wrong." And when they started silencing those people, I was like, "Oh, okay, we're." we are sliding down the slippery slope now. We're no longer at the top. Like we're in a really, really dangerous territory. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think like, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of issues right now, like in the United States alone, you know, that, that we need to work on and, you know, fixing the monetary policy, I think is one thing, you know, when it comes back to Bitcoin and other things like that. But I think there's a lot of, lot of underlying issues that, you know, are kind of evolved around the whole like freedom of self and freedom of expression and freedom of speech that, you know, like that kind of, you know, you feel that empowerment once you kind of take control of your money with Bitcoin. And, you know, I I think like just overall, we have a long ways to go with a lot of these issues. And, and I'm hoping that we can find the way back. But, you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm feeling like we're getting kind of farther down the, uh, dark hole here. And, uh, I don't even know if I really see a way out. Well, I mean, you kind of have to because like the the thing that a lot of the Bitcoin community um, forgets is that when you go down this rabbit hole, like the rabbit hole gets so small and echoey that 
you forget what it's like to be on the outside. And I mean, it's no different. It's it's just like that Batman quote from what, Harvey Dent, where like the, the night is darkest just before dawn. Like, because we have to get to the point of enough of these populations across the world. This is not just the U.S., right? It's it's everybody that, that at least everybody that stands to benefit from using Bitcoin in some form or fashion. Um, like a lot of these populations, like these people, like they just have to get pushed to um, a particular pressure point or pain point or, you know, discomfort point that uh, they just can't bear it anymore. And they start to realize that maybe the way that they're, they're doing things just uh, isn't the way that the world, um, the world demands anymore. Cause I, I mean, cause like at one point, people have to think about how like like i'm a millennial so i grew up in an age where we didn't have wi-fi and we didn't have mobile data and where text messaging was like all the rage and where you would like, you would memorize like where the the buttons were for t9 word for those that remember that like you would memorize like the clicks it took to part like, get to a special letter now like you don't need that like and it's just people uh People forget what adoption curves are like when you're experiencing them as they're happening. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what I think is interesting is that a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of flocking to Latin America, especially, you know, countries like El Salvador that are kind of becoming, you know, almost a little bit more free because they're adopting Bitcoin uh, and kind of going along those lines. And that kind of leads me into my next story where, you know, the Latin American's largest investment bank is now launching a Bitcoin and cryptocurrency exchange in Brazil called uh, called Mint. And so it seems like any time I kind of turn in and look at these news stories, something big is happening in Latin America. So how do you kind of feel about, I guess, overall adoption uh, as far as like LATAM goes and, uh, you know, the, I guess the continued adoption that LATAM faces for Bitcoin and, you know, to a lesser extent, I guess, the crypto markets? Um, I, I, I enjoy it a lot. I, I, I personally, um, I would much rather see the people that need Bitcoin most get the opportunities to really get some sort of meaningful, um, position started. Like, you know, so a lot of them down there are using it because it's just, it's just faster, easier, and better. Um, some, I, hopefully some are capable of, uh, just like stashing a little bit away to the side. Um, because I would rather see, I'd rather see, uh, Latin America, Central America, um, Africa. Um, and that obviously includes, you know, when I say Central America, I obviously include Mexico. Um, I would rather see like the middle class and the impoverished in America and abroad, like get positions in Bitcoin now and understand it before these big players like BlackRock get in here and start like manipulating these markets just like they've been doing with gold and real estate and everything else like and because like i'm i'm all for number go up guys but i would rather see everybody else get lifted up with the tide and not just the people that are that are greedy sons of bitches yeah i mean i agree with you 100 percent. last week we covered uh you know how blackrock's partnering up with coinbase to offer some more of these bitcoin related products so i think a lot of the big players are kind of waking up which is unfortunate but you know at the same time like well we had the high of 69k and we're kind of floating at 23 24 right now so 
um, you know, relatively speaking, it's a, it seems like it's a good time to uh, scoop up some cheap sats, obviously not financial advice or anything like that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I agree with you 100%. I think like a lot of these countries are kind of realizing like, hey, you know, we're on the dollar standard or you're, you're having these currencies that are, you know, facing rapid inflation and, you know, it's suffering a lot of the people like, you know, countries like Argentina, Venezuela that are going through these, you know, crazy, crazy, uh, you know, fiat, just ups and downs in their, in their monetary policy. And so I think like a lot of these, you know, the people in these countries are just kind of flocking towards Bitcoin and, you know, it makes sense, right? Because they're looking for something that, uh, you know, has some of these hard money policies. So I think that, you know, Latin America, Africa, a lot of these countries are going to, our people are going to start adopting it and kind of forcing the hand of a lot of the countries, which is what kind of seemed like happened in El Salvador with, you know, like the Bitcoin beach. I'm hearing of other places in the, like Honduras, I can't remember that. Maybe it's like Bitcoin Lake or Bitcoin Valley or something along those I think, lines. I think Guatemala might have been on one of those or something like that. Yeah. So a lot of these Latin American countries are kind of having these communities that are creating, you know, that circular economy where, you know, Bitcoin transactions are going back and forth. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the United States has the most to lose in this situation. And so because they have the most to lose, that they're going to be, I think, the, the most resistant to this change. I hope I'm wrong, but, um, you know, I, I see kind of the United States um, not being uh, not accepting, you know, Bitcoin as a legal tender anytime soon, strictly because, you know, they have the, the global reserve currency at the moment. So I don't know. I think it's an interesting development, but I'll we'll actually see. I'll take the other side on that. Okay. Um, I think I think uh, I agree that that the U.S. is in a position to be capable of losing a lot, but I think that they are also in a position to be capable of gaining a lot. Um, and I've been talking about this for the last like ugh, mosquitoes. I've been talking about this for the last like um, year, year and a half, because uh, a lot of people I think forgot that. Um, FDIC was looking into Bitcoin to allow banks to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheets. And if that, in my opinion, if that were to go through to where banks could hold Bitcoin on their balance sheets, um, specifically central banks, uh, if they were capable of doing that and those funds were, you know, put up for FDIC insurance or something like that, like whatever they end up, the whole point is like if it allows if they were to allow it to become an asset that can prop up central banks that support, you know, more fiat printing um, that probably strengthens the dollar further. And the, the dollar has been getting strengthened ridiculously the last like couple months. And so, like, in my opinion, that that like there is there is a future possible future where the U.S. co-ops Bitcoin to preserve dollar hegemony going forward. Oh, exactly. And I think, you know, I think uh, that's an interesting point because it, I keep referring back to, to last week, my, my discussion with Phil Gibson, but we kind of, he took a dive into the Federal Reserve's policy and he thinks that, you know, raising the interest rates and doing what the Fed is doing is essentially, you know, just ex exploiting the weak of Europe and, and some of these other markets and yeah. like U.S. has this global reserve currency, they can kind of pull the strings. And so you strengthen the dollar so much that you know, all these other fiat currencies are essentially going to fail. 
um, because at the end of the day, they're all backed by the dollar um, that, you know, the, the U.S. kind of remains in power. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it goes. You know, we've had Powell come out and say that there's room for multiple, uh, you know, global reserve currencies. So maybe there's a situation where it's Bitcoin and the dollar or the dollar gets backed by Bitcoin. I don't know. It'll be interesting to kind of see how it plays out. But I don't think that there's like really a clear path and a path that isn't going to be resisted by many, um, at least in my eyes right now. Yeah, like I, I agree. Um, I think there's whenever there's a network transfer as far as like because you could use a network transfer analogy for an adoption curve. And because it's always an overlap, like one's going down, the other's coming up. And that always involves a serious amount of friction, like an annoyingly high amount of friction. Because a lot of times for the new network or for the new adoption curve is like, it just makes logical sense. But people just don't, people are extremely resistant to change. A lot of people find security in their routines. Like I'm one of those people, like it's a very natural thing. And like people, people get cranky when you start to challenge their routines or their, their, uh, their um, entrenched ways of life. And like, Bitcoiners need to be uh, comfortable with that because, like, like we haven't even started the then they fight you stage. In my opinion, I don't think we've seen that yet. And if we've already seen it, then like that was a really, really pathetic fight me stage. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. But I, I don't know. Like, I'd be curious to kind of see like how that comes because you know we're seeing a lot more big players, like you said, like come into adoption, right? So we've seen BlackRock come in. We've seen a lot of. Uh, you know, professional sports leagues kind of embrace it with a lot of sponsorships, uh, you know, FTX arena, we have crypto.com arena and all those kind of things too. And, and now we have the Houston Texans accepted Bitcoin as payment for a suite. And so they partnered with BitWallet and they're now accepting, you know, payments for tickets and Bitcoin. So, I mean, do you think like the kind of pull of, of a lot of these large corporations. Can you hear me? I don't know if I lost you. There you go. You lagged for a little bit. I was about to talk. Uh, okay. But basically I was get, getting at, uh, I'm not sure if you, uh, if you saw, but the Houston Texans now are accepting Bitcoin as payment for suites in their NFL stadium. And so at the end of the day, like, do you think a lot of these big players kind of coming in will either delay or not even uh, have the then they fight you stage? Or do you still think that there's still going to be a path where, you know, governments start to resist? Ooh, are you back yet? You're lagging a little bit. Technical difficulties. Um, but I, I will, I'll, uh, I'll answer your question real quick, uh, in case it's not lagging from my end. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Can you hear there me? We go. It's, it's starting to catch up a little bit. Um, but as far as, uh, I think it's more of just like marketing and virtue signaling from those entities. I don't think, I don't think that, cause like, it's going to be just like Elon Musk and Tesla. Um, there won't be a lot of people 
in my opinion, that fork over valuable Bitcoin for a piddly suite at an NBA game. Um, because in my in like in my opinion, we're also like going into the recession. Like when recessions kick off, people have less time and money for you know paying for things like basketball games. So those teams are going to start seeing like their income reduced pretty substantially. And if their income is reducing substantially and they're like, they have less clients coming to the games to enjoy them. Those clients are also, in my opinion, likely not going to spend that valuable Bitcoin to go to a game. Um, it's, it's good marketing for them in my opinion, because it says it's kind of like virtue signaling, like, Hey, we like Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, I do still think that there, like there is very much a fight you stage left. Um, just because of the, like I was, we were talking earlier, like the volatility is coming to the oil and gas market as far as like the phase transition beginning to start and people realizing that they need more hydrocarbons. But there's going to be, there's there's still plenty of fight left before um, that tide actually shifts. And there is always the, oper- there is always the possibility that that tide doesn't shift. And it shifts, or at least it shifts in the opposite direction that like I want, that GAM wants, and that the rest of like the Bitcoin community wants. Um, and if that happens, like things get a lot worse. That's just that's like that's just the fact of the matter is like because like we like most of us know in the Bitcoin like space, like we understand how it incentivizes energy generation, and that is like in particular what the entire world needs a lot of right now. And if you if you don't want to if you don't want to accept that and you don't want to utilize that strategy and really start like, you know, actually providing a force for the world that is capable of doing a lot of good, then things are just going to keep getting worse until you know people have that epiphany like revelation moment. Yeah, no, I I agree with you there. I just think you know I think there's two interesting parts about this story. Like one that it's in Houston, and of course you know that that's surrounding the oil and gas field, and there's a lot of you know, Bitcoiners that are kind of flocking to the Austin, Houston area, what have you. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like that's kind of carrying over. And two, like, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to kind of push back on the spending of valuable Bitcoin because, like, right, If what if they, you know, say they give a slight discount in dollar terms, right, where if you pay in Bitcoin, for this, you know, I, I could just essentially just go on my phone, do, you know, go to their sponsor, whatever it is, and just buy the Bitcoin immediately and then spend it, you know, right then and there. So there's really no change. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not me spending the Bitcoin. It's spending dollars that I would normally spend and just converting it to Bitcoin and just kind of converting it there. Because, you know, to, to be honest, like I kind of had that first initial mental hurdle to get over when it came to spending Bitcoin as well. Because it was like, well, you know, I don't really want to spend my Bitcoin. I just want to keep holding it and keep stacking but then I kind of came to the realization. I was like, well, like, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to spend this money anyway. So I could just like essentially convert it to Bitcoin right before and do it that way. So, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll see some people kind of go towards this. But, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I, what I thought was interesting, too, is like it's, it's not the Cowboys. It's not like the most expensive franchise. It is the Texans, but they're also ranked like the 11th most valuable team according to Forbes. So it's not like the Texans are this small franchise, but they're not a big one. Right. So I don't know. I think like, like you said, it's good publicity. I think they're supposed to be pretty bad this year too. So maybe it, maybe it'll help bring some more people to the games. I don't know. But um, yeah, I think that there's kind of like a long way for, 
not only Bitcoiners, just like people in general to kind of get over that mental hurdle of just like spending Bitcoin. Um, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Do you think like there's still, you know, a lot of ways to go? Or do you think like people are going to still kind of come to that realization that I kind of came to? Um, I think it's both. But <clears throat> but I do think that there's I, there's still a lot more weight. There's a lot more improvements to be made as far as like how to spend it. Um, Cause I mean, like, just consider like if you could use, if you could somehow use your Bitcoin for DoorDash or Amazon, like a lot more people would be incentivized because it's also just faster. I mean, it's faster in real settlement terms, but most people don't even understand that like purchasing something on credit isn't settled for anywhere from 30 to 90 days. Like, but that, and like, that also doesn't really impact a lot of people. So I don't know. I, th I think you're you're probably more right than I am in, in all reality, um, because at the same time, like like I just like I like buying. I, if somebody is selling coffee and they accept lightning payments, and I have enough topped off on you know one of my wallets, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'll do that. Like I'll show you something that's really cool. <laughs> so yeah, I, I and I and a lot of these positions, whether it's on spending Bitcoin or on like the macroeconomic environment. I tell everybody that when I like share my opinion, I like, I'm ultimately a Bitcoin bull. I would, mu I would much rather be wrong in a lot of these positions and I'm very comfortable with being wrong and I would be very, very happy to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's fair too. But, um, you know, on, on the Bitcoin bull route, you know, a lot of us, we shit on all other shit coins. And I think and right now I, I normally don't talk about any other shit coin on the show unless there's some giant rug pull or something along those lines that, you know, it's getting a lot of headlines. And this one, I just couldn't, I, I normally never talk about Ethereum, but I couldn't get around it because <laughs> it seems like everywhere I go, I'm seeing Bitcoiners talk about ETH 2.0 and the ETH merge. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm extremely well versed in Ethereum and the merge and the whole process in general, but it seems like there's been countless red flags with this merge. And I haven't even been following it too closely. First, it's uh, first I saw that the developers said flat out said that it will not lower the gas fees or anything like that. And so, what I also think that that is the biggest red flag, which is another reason why you know Three Arrows Capital and Celsius and some of these others went down, is because they stake. You can stake a lot of money into Ethereum 2.0 but you can't pull out that money for what they say right now of at least six to 12 months. So, uh, I mean, like, how, do you think that this is just going to be like the biggest, you know, rug pull of maybe of all time? Or do you think like maybe there's some like legitimacy here where like, you know, uh, I don't know, is it, is there, do you, or are you just like, I guess basically anti everything else other than Bitcoin? Um, as soon as they announced, the structuring for ETH2 as far as like the, uh, I think it was like 16 validating shards or something like that. And then there was like four shards of those shards. So there's technically like 64 as far as the structure goes. And as soon as they announced that, and it was like for like, like how they thought that like the staking system was going to operate. I was like, this is, they're screwed. Like there's, there's no way out of this. And then when I, when I finally understood that, uh, the the smart contract for the upgrade to ETH2 was uh, it was a lockup. Like you have to send in however many and you get however many out. So it's just there's inflationary aspects around every turn. 
and then they're trying to figure out the difficulty bomb like that's been a walking failure since it like went live and now they're now there's a lot of rumblings of within the eve community how they're gonna fracture into the eth2 uh hard fork and then like proof of stake and then like proof of mining and like they're all gonna have like their own like offshoots and i was like that that's 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 gonna be the death of eve right there i maybe something will like continue on afterwards that you know continues with the mining and uh the the proof of work aspect and they, maybe they find something to to work out of that but uh it's like how everything has been structured for the last couple of years it's, it's not gonna like how everything is now and how everything has been is like we're kind of watching the death rows at this point in my opinion and i think a lot of and like to your the point of your like direct answering directly your question is i think a lot of people are going to get financially crushed because this this is gonna this is gonna be a, a rug pull in my opinion i just don't understand how people don't see it either like i i don't know i mean like maybe they've just gone along with the uh you know, the sales pitch of everything else like that. But like, I mean, I don't see how it's any better than the current financial system. I just see that, you know, people understand, like I get the aspect of, okay, you can build upon, you know, Ethereum a little bit easier than maybe building upon the Bitcoin network. But, you know, like now that I have this podcast and I go out, you know, I do Twitter space, other things like that, like get approached by a lot of these people who bring blockchain companies to me saying that, you know, they want to sponsor or you want, they want me to talk about it or other things like that. The first question I always ask is like, why does it need to be on a blockchain? And people don't really like, understand, (laughs) you know, the full like inner workings of it still. So I think there's like still like a huge knowledge gap. And I just, I don't know like how that, you know, with the, I guess the freedom that that Bitcoin in the greater crypto space is supposed to, you know, take your money out of banks, unbank yourself, which was like kind of Celsius's motto, like how all this stuff is just like, okay, it's it's the motto, it's a marketing pitch, but then it's like, okay, lock up your money for six to 12 months in this ETH protocol and everything's going to be fine. Like, I, I just don't yeah. see how like how that connects in people's mind. And, you know, I, I don't know. I hope for, you know, people's sake in Ethereum that, they are kind of waking up to this fact and they're switching over to Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. But, you know, I, I think it's going to take some people getting burned first, uh, unfortunately. And I think a lot of people have gotten burned uh, during this bear market. But uh, I think that there's still going to be more blood in the streets, unfortunately. Yeah, like it, it, it takes a it doesn't unfortunately, it doesn't take a few people getting burned. It takes a lot of people getting burned. Because like, like I mentioned earlier is some of those people are going to completely throw in the towel and give up. And then a s- even smaller portion of those people are going to lean in and try to understand what happens so they don't get burned like that in the future. And those are, and ultimately those are the smart people, like to be completely fair. And I'm not trying to insult anybody or anything when I say that. It's just smart people want to, like smart people and winners, like when they fail, they want to learn why they failed and how they failed so they don't do it again in the future. And like, that's just, that's just a fact of life. 100%. And Mike, you've been very generous with your time. So I really appreciate it. But let's wrap it up here. And why don't you tell everybody, you know, what you got going on and where they can find you? Sure. Um, And by the way, it was was a fun rip. We should definitely do this again uh, soon. Um, what I've been doing is I've been working on producing a, I call it a report. Um, 
I guess you could call it a report. It's, it's an essay where I, I kind of laid out the current situation with oil and gas markets and then made the and I am making the uh, the argument for why Bitcoin and why oil and gas producers particularly um, should be very interested. Um, we've got some awesome data on our end that definitely argues that point that I think a lot of people will like seeing because we got, you know, pretty little graphs and charts. Um, but then at the same time, I'm also working on producing like more enjoyable, just kind of fun blog posts from, from the GAM website, just more continuations of like the stuff that I kind of wrote, um, for Bitcoin magazine that a lot of people enjoyed hearing from me. And then I'm also working on another, uh, another piece of work where I kind of lay out how the bureaucratic, um, policy side of the oil and gas industry also incentivizes looking into Bitcoin um, because not a lot of people realize that, like what the kinds of things that are going on behind uh, behind the the massive high school play curtain that is mainstream media and like how oil and gas leasing and like the relationships with the, the EPA go and all that. So I, I'm, I'm hard at work. I can, I can definitely uh, I can promise you that. Um, and then as far as like how people can, can find me, um, I, I, I'll post a lot of my for fun stuff on medium. It's just at Mike Hobart. Uh, but on Twitter, I am at the, so T H E E and then Mike Hobart. And it's, it, I like to keep it nice and simple. Perfect. Yeah. And, uh, I would definitely give Mike a follow. He he's on a lot of Twitter spaces too, always putting out great stuff as well. So you can definitely interact with him on there. Um, and yeah, you overall put great, great content. I, I really enjoyed this rip. You know, I feel like we could probably talk about this stuff for hours, but I see it's getting dark for you out there. So I don't want to keep <laughs> you out here all night. So, uh, Mike, it. And, and yeah, like you said, you're going to have to come on sometime soon. Oh yeah, dude. You just gotta, you just gotta let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll tell you when times I can do it. All right, man. Sounds good. Well, thanks again.